Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to uh, the 10th episode of this podcast. Um, great to have you all. Today, we have a very special guest. Um, this uh, person is, um, funnily enough, um, my college boyfriend, um, who I've spoken about very briefly before. Um, I'm a little bit nervous uh, because we basically, we've, we've stayed on good terms, but we probably talk like once a year or once or twice a year, maybe like exchange like hellos. Um, and recently we, um, we were just kind of saying hi and um, Paul mentioned my podcast and I was like, you should come on as a guest. And to my surprise, he was like, yeah, I'm down. Um, so yeah, so here we are. Um, we will hopefully have lots of interesting topics to discuss. Who knows how it will go. Um, and yeah, um, so Paul is here. And I will let him introduce himself and tell you guys a little bit more about himself. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Um, my name is Paul, as Vithya mentioned. Uh, I'm a Libra. Um, <laughs> we, we dated in college. Uh, yeah, I live in New York City. Uh, I'm the head of communications for a biotech company. Um, I'm originally from California. Um, yeah, I don't know. What else should I say? Um... Let me think. What else should you say? That I think that's good. You maybe just that you were after college. You briefly spent some time, or not briefly. You spent some years in, in academia in grad school, and then transitioned to to the role that you have right now. Correct. Yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah, no, it's good. It's been a wild ride. Um, thanks for having me on here. Thanks for being here. Um, also, should add now happily married. Yes, I, I should. I should add that actually. Yes, I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, how many years? How many years have you been married? We got married in November of 2019, the day before Thanksgiving. Um, we actually had a very nice ceremony at the uh, the city clerk's office here in Manhattan. So um, yeah, very happily married. And uh, yeah, my wife is from the city. She's she's really never left. Actually, she uh, she uh, grew up in in Manhattan. Went to college and law school in Manhattan. So she's a uh, She's very much a local in a way that I'm not. Cool. Um, yeah, so we, uh, before before this podcast, before recording today, we had like an hour pre-talk about um, just like about life and our experiences and partially about our relationship and how we view it now. Um, we'll see if we get into any of that stuff on the podcast. Um, but I wanted to start... Um, with um, with some of your background growing up, um, because I believe until high school, um, you were homeschooled. That's right. And um, yeah, just I know you had some some thoughts you wanted to share and just kind of tell us about that experience. Um, and yeah, what you think about it now looking back. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I was I was listening to your prior episode where you were you were talking about you, how you know for you high school was this great academic experience where you really grew and developed and learned uh, how to write and all of that and uh, I was sort of thinking back and and really genuinely I think the best educational experience I ever had was was that homeschooling period um, partly because I think I'm someone who 
chafes under like restrictions and like more regimented styles. And I think um, the nice thing about the way the way that I was educated with my siblings was it was much more free form, much more kind of autonomous, sort of pursuing things that interested you. Um, I I actually, you know, now so many people are doing online education beca because of COVID, but actually I took an online class back in 1997. So this must have been one of the earlier online classes. Uh, Very cool, pioneer. And actually it was wonderful, it was wonderful. It was, it was really uh, actually an amazing experience. What it was was, I don't know, do you know the school St. John's College? It's like kind of a great books curriculum. Yes, yes. Basically it was a guy who had graduated from there and wanted to teach that curriculum, their sort of core, you know, classics curriculum, uh, you know, to high school students and middle school students who were interested. Uh, online and uh, and actually it was a amazing experience of reading you know Homer and Thucydides and Sophocles and all that stuff but but it was all kind of done in a way that was really thoughtful about um, I guess identifying every little element in, in the narrative that we were reading and sort of piece you know breaking them apart like you would sort of you know I, I'm just I can think of tons of examples but he would be like you know Homer always refers to the wine dark sea. Um, what does that mean? Like, you know, when you think of wine and you think of the ocean, they don't really look that similar. Um, mm -hmm. Is it because like, you know, wine back then was diluted to become, you know, with water, in, in, in fact it was, um, but then what about the color? Like, is it the case that ancient Greeks um, perceived blue and purple to be equivalent colors? Like, it was just a very interesting class where you really, where we just dove in really deeply into, analyzing texts and and I really loved it and I, and I loved the fact that it was really kind of learning for learning's sake uh you know there weren't grades uh, you know at the end of each semester he would write up a you know like a a long detailed you know letter to parent explaining what we learned and the, the way the comments I'd made in class that were insightful and areas where I could grow and all that but it was very just sort of I don't know it was just sort of it was just a, a wonderful experience of just of learning about an ancient foreign society um, in an in, in a structured but kind of non-competitive way, which I really liked. Um, and yeah, I, I really got a lot out of that, out of those two years that I took that class. Um, by comparison, I think high school was a little bit of a letdown. Um, having grown up with homeschooling, uh, the whole notion of going from class to class for fixed periods of time, sitting down in desks, like being lectured to, like that really did not <laughs> did not seem appealing to me. Um, and, and I, and I didn't, I just thought that was a very dumb way to educate people. Um, so that when I, you know, when, when, when I got to college and when we, when we, when we met, um, you know, I really did everything I could to take exclusively seminar classes that were much more, you know, similar to the experience I had in that sort of great books thing. So, um, yeah, I, I was, I was definitely not the most diligent attendee whenever I had like a lecture class I had to go to. Um, but yeah. I was thinking. I was thinking back. Do you, do you remember what class we took together when we first met? Yeah, the reign of Charles the first. Yeah, and the funny thing is, <laughs> it says it sounds like such a ridiculously narrow subject matter to study for a class like the reign of Charles the first of England. But actually, it was even more narrow than that because all we studied was the personal reign, which was like a I don't know, like a ten year period. Yes. When, when when basically it was it's basically like the 1630s, I think, and we didn't even get we didn't even get to like the Civil War. Or like his execution, like all we studied was like this very like one decade basically in English history, and I love that class. I thought it was really fun. I think you liked it a little less than I did, but um, <laughs> but it was interesting. 
Yeah. I mean, I think, um, obviously listeners don't know you, but I think you really, I mean, I remember in college you had both like such a love of learning and such an interest in history, like just like a genuine kind of fascination, um, with, and I, I mean, I'm sure that's partially why you went to grad school. Um, and also just had like this incredible wealth of knowledge in, in so many different areas, both like highbrow and lowbrow. Um, and I was always like, so impressed by that kind of the level, yeah, the level of knowledge and insight and like where, how could you have learned all this information and how could you process and remember all this information? I, I don't think I'd met someone that was kind of at that level um, and I wonder, I mean, I think part of it is just your, your personality and the fact that you genuinely found all of this so fascinating, but I wonder how much of that would, would maybe have gotten squashed to some degree if you hadn't had that homeschooling experience. I, I think, I think there's definitely something to that. I think I had a uniquely, you know, a, a type of education that was well suited for the type of person that I was. And I don't think homeschooling is for everyone, but, um, but for me, it was, um, you mentioned personality and you mentioned, I remember one of your episodes is doing a personality test, which r reminded me of the, the Myers-Briggs uh, test. So I actually retook it and I got the exact same result that I took when, when I, when I got it, uh, the same result that I got when I took it in high school. For some reason, our high school all made us take the Myers-Briggs test, which looking back is sort of strange, but um, <laughs> I, I don't know why they did that. But I, anyway, Yeah, I've heard other people say that too, yeah. that they that they had to take it in school. I don't think we ever took it, but that's, yeah, that's so funny. A weird like pseudoscientific like the whole thing is kind of bizarre to begin with but the idea of a high school administering as a test is very strange but anyways I got an INTJ which is the same result I got when I was a high school student and I think like the personality type as far as I can understand from like looking online is one that's very much like yeah likes to learn likes to kind of build on their knowledge um I will say like I I don't know if you feel the same way but the way my mind works is if I actually already have a pre-existing structure, like I know quite a bit about a subject already, it's a lot easier for me to retain new pieces of information that I can sort of stick onto that architecture that's already there. Whereas if it's a subject matter that I don't really have much familiarity with, I often will just forget the details. Um, Samantha and I were watching this, this documentary series on the Silk Road, and uh, and I was really struck by just the fact that like, that's just an area of the world I don't know much about, like, you know, Turkmenistan and, you know, Kyrgyzstan and, you know, all these details that, that the, the host of the show mentions, I just sort of have a hard time fitting it anywhere. Like, I don't know when, when he mentions like Tamerlane, I don't quite know. I think he's in the 16th century, but I don't really know. Um, and I don't know much beyond that. So it's sort of, it makes it hard for me to retain information. But if I know something that I've like studied in some detail, it's a lot easier for me to retain, retain facts. And, um, I'll have you know, our company actually had a, a, a trivia night um, for, our, for our company. <laughs> I bet you did well. Yeah, I, I, was, the ch I was the champion, uh, or my team was the championship team uh, this last December for our holiday party. So, um, yeah, I am pretty good at trivia. So that's that still is true. Well, I think that, I mean, like I, like I was saying, I think that what's interesting is kind of this, like, you, you have the highbrow kind of whatever academic type knowledge, but you also, like, like, I know you post on Facebook, like, you know, something I, I'm totally, I could be like getting this a little bit wrong, but 
like the top like Nicolas Cage movies yeah. and you were I, I actually really all, like, like, yeah, I love Nicolas Cage movies for what it's worth. Um, I've actually, <laughs> during quarantine, I've been forcing Samantha to watch a lot of them. So we've watched like Con Air, Face Off, which are all, I actually think are really good movies, but yes. Oh yeah, I love those but movies. They're, they're definitely not highbrow. Yeah, it, it, I think sometimes people get the impression of me from, they just think, I don't know, maybe because I do have some more offbeat and sort of pretentious interests that they they imagine I'm sort of this like Niles Crane, you know, from Frasier character who just like sips brandy and like, you know, watches PBS. But actually, I, I love action movies and uh, always have. Um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess I have, I don't know, I, I have a eclectic interest. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say uh, it's exclusively high or lowbrow. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you f- do you find that now that you're not in academia, what's the way that you kind of um, not nurture, but like satisfy that desire to kind of learn and, and delve deep into into various topics? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, certainly working in, in the biotech industry has been great because it's a whole area of, of information that I really knew nothing about before I before I started doing it. And um so it's been fun to learn and, and sort of develop knowledge in that domain, which was pretty much absent from when I started the, my current job. Um, I also still just like to read online. I like to read books. Um, I read a lot more nonfiction than fiction, but, um, but you know, even fiction, I try to keep up with, you know, a novel or two every couple months. Um, I've, I've been less, honestly, weirdly less diligent about that during COVID. You would think that like, this would be the perfect time to like get caught up on like, you know, novels and reading, but I don't know, for some reason, I find it hard to focus as much during this period. So, um, yeah, I feel like I've been doing more, more movies and less, less books this last year. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think a lot of people have, have said that, um, you know, something about being in this like crisis mode and this, I don't know if it's that, or just like being kind of understimulated generally by not being able to go out and travel and see friends that, that I've, I've heard other people mention that they, are not able to focus as much. And maybe it's just some of like the underlying anxiety yeah. that we all fe- feel kind of because of what's happening. I think that must be, there must be something to that. Yeah. I, I certainly feel it myself. You certainly feel what? Yeah. I feel that, that sort of inability to focus sometimes it's uh, yeah. just like, it's a, it's a stressful situation. It's an unusual time to be living through. So. Yeah. A hundred percent. Um, so going back to the, to the homeschooling thing, I wanted to ask your opinion of, or I guess your thoughts on kind of what's going on with children's schooling right now. Mm. And, um, you know, obviously I think not so much like the question of whether or when children should go back to school, but I don't know, just in the context of your good experiences with homeschooling, maybe like, how do you think children can take advantage or turn this time into something positive. Um, you know, we all know how much obviously like young children especially struggle and how horrible it is that they have to do Zoom school basically, which like is completely developmentally inappropriate. And also, um, and also just even outside of COVID, you know, I think what you said about, about just having to sit at desks and be lectured to like, that's probably not the best thing for any, any young kid. Um, so I don't know what your, what your thoughts are on, like, if there's anything, yeah, I mean, anything we can do differently, I guess, just as a society in terms of education. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of funny, like, um, 
you know, we, you mentioned or we mentioned earlier the class on on Charles Charles the first, and like you know, if you think about about our educational system, this idea of like kids sitting in little kids sitting in desks and being lectured to, like that's kind of a new way of educating, right? Like you know, certainly if you're an aristocrat in the 17th or 18th century, you kind of had the education I had, right? You were homeschooled, you had sort of private tutors, things of that nature, and I think like I don't know, there's sort of an assumption that like we going back to normal is the ideal right like going back to the way things were that's what the objective is for society during this time and i guess i'm just not so persuaded that's true like i i just think that there's probably a lot of better ways to teach children than the ones that are being employed today um i, I certainly think having kids sitting in front of a computer with a zoom class is just idiotic like i i think you're probably better off honestly as a kid just like not going to school this year and like just educating yourself than you are sitting in front of a computer screen um, totally. like that, that, that to me is just insane. But, um, but even the normal way of doing it, like, you know, there's all these issues with children with ADHD and et cetera, you know, sort of, sort of unable to sit still. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's what it's like to be a kid, right? Like, you know, it's, yeah. it's almost a weird medicalization of just kind of normal childhood behavior. Um, but you know, again, again it depends what you what you see the purpose of education as, right? Like if the purpose is instilling a love of learning and knowledge, um, you know, that's not great if the purpose is getting people to obey rules and conform and be a productive member of society. Maybe that is actually, um, you know, a better way to do it. Um, I just think it's kind of depressing. Yeah, that's so interesting. Uh, it's interesting also um, that, you know, our different experiences of, of the Harvard education, um, because for you, you know, those like seminars where you got to kind of dig in deep, I think were really enjoyable and interesting. And I think for me, and maybe it was just me being a contrarian, because now I'm like, well, it is cool to like, look at primary sources and like, learn how to do that. But I was like, I want a general education, I want to like, yeah. the broad strokes. And I felt like I didn't, you know, and I think we could probably is would be like, non-controversial to say that Harvard wasn't the best at offering that kind of education, like, especially, yep. I mean, particularly in the history department, but they were very strong in teaching you kind of how to, how to be a historian yeah. and how to do historical work more than like, you know, here's, here's everything that happened. Here's the history of China. Here's the history of Japan. Here's the history of like, you know, whatever Middle East, like that, that wasn't really the model. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I feel like the, the model was, as you said, like training you to be a historian. Like there was, it was all about analyzing primary sources, constructing an argument. Like it was very, yeah, it wasn't actually focused at all really on providing like a broad survey of, of Western history. Um, yeah, I, I feel like, I feel like that is, it was a failing that you, it was actually kind of hard to get that if you wanted it. You had to kind of piece it together from a bunch of disparate classes. Um and and it didn't. There was never anything like the Columbia Core Curriculum or anything like that, where you could sort of, you know, get a get a broad overview of things in a way that actually would be be interesting. Um, yeah, I guess I was I was just drawn more to those seminar classes. I took a lot of those classes on really like I took a class just on Hobbes. I took a class just on John Locke. You know, I like those sort of super focused, um, you know, primary source heavy classes. But um, but yeah, for, for, for most people, those, those probably weren't that interesting. And they probably just wanted like a Western Civ class. And there really wasn't anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of which, um, I'm interested in kind of um, both what made you initially go into the PhD program and go into academia. And then which which I that part I, I probably know more about, but then also kind of what made you 
what made you exit academia? Because it did seem, from my perspective, like such a great fit for you and your interests. Yeah, yeah. I, I, well, so th- the reason I, I started academia, honestly, was I, I thought about law school. I, I know I'd taken the LSAT. I actually worked as a LSAT instructor between college and, and grad school. Um, but like, yeah, the PhD program was sort of, I just loved history and I really went into it with the expectation of just, yeah, it fit my personality. I'd done well in history classes in college and on my senior thesis. And it was sort of like, it felt like a logical step. Um, I will say like the thing I learned, I re- so I, I would say being, being in a grad program like that, you learn what you're good at and what you're not good at. I really liked teaching. I, I taught, a, you know, it was sort of doing, it's a process called being a preceptor, sort of like leading a discussion session. I, I love that part of it. I, I really enjoyed it. I also liked the writing part. I liked the, um, you know, coming up with interesting arguments and writing essays and stuff. I enjoyed that element of it. But fundamentally, like the main thing you do as a PhD student, which you really don't do as an undergrad, is like detailed research, like just like really archival, like spending long hours um, you know, in, in an archive reading primary sources. And, and I'll be honest, with you, I hated that. I was not very good at it either. Um, there's, there's a term in, in German called Sitzfleisch, like literally like sitting flesh or like, it's like a euphemism for your ass, but it's also like, it refers to the, the ability to like kind of sit still and focus and do a task methodically. Um, and I did not have that at all. Um, and, and I think also, I, you know, it's funny, you, you in college, I think more than me cared more about like, practicality and like the application to the real world. And I feel like I, 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 it's not that I grew to care more about that. Um, well, maybe I did grow to care more about that, but I became more, more aware of just how the work I was doing just felt kind of, I don't know, insignificant in various ways. Um, so that was, that was a major, major thing. Also, the thing is the academic job market is just really tough. Like if you want to be a historian, you really have to be flexible about where you're willing to move like across the country, because there just aren't that many tenure track jobs in, um, you know, the area that you you study. And uh, yeah, I was living in New York. I was working um, at the New York Public Library on doing like exhibition curation. And yeah, I just, I like New York. I want to stay in New York. So um, yeah, I got a good opportunity to work, work in biotech. And honestly, my current role is actually really engaging and really intellectually stimulating. I, I, I never would have thought, um, you know, my role is effectively like minister of propaganda, right? Um, you know, for the, for the company. <laughs> and, and I sit on the management team, so I'm on the Politburo too, I guess. But um, but anyways, like the the, the role is one where I, I, I definitely like um, did not dream of working in, in corporate communications or <laughs> public relations growing up. Um, but, but honestly, it's actually a really fun job and it involves a lot of creative creativity, a lot of you know, thoughtfulness about writing and, and communications. And uh, it actually suits my personality really well. Um, I also tell myself that, you know, most of the great uh, writers from the 17th and 18th century uh, worked at, worked in public relations. You know, um, you know uh, John Milton, you know, worked under Cromwell, you know, Defoe, Fielding, they both worked as, as, as minis- you know, sort of propagandists. So it's a, it's a long tradition. It's, it's a great one. Uh, I'm proud to be a part of it. um that's awesome yeah and and a lot of them had you know they had day jobs even as they were you know composing these great treatises exactly exactly and I think there's something nice about having like a little bit of a real world impact being involved in kind of the hustle and bustle of business like I like kind of being at the intersection of science and technology and finance and these things It's, it's interesting you learn a lot about um yeah just how the world works how how modern economic system works but in that kind of role um, so yeah, I, it's, it's been really wonderful. I've, I've really enjoyed the opportunity. It's been great. Um, 
Yeah, and it's been fun being in New York. Although I would say it's less fun during COVID to be in New York. There's not a whole lot to do nowadays. But fortunately, uh, we moved uptown and we're near the park. So I, I go for long strolls in Central Park, which is nice. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and hopefully we'll all be vaccinated in the next several months and the new variants will not be, um, will not render the vaccines ineffective Um, (laughs) and everything. Yeah. Things will start to go back to something like normal or a new normal. Yeah. And honestly, like I, I, I've never been the most like sociable, like party person. So like a lot of the things that are closed, I don't miss, but the things I really do miss are like going to restaurants with friends, going to theater, going to movies like that. I really, really, um, I miss a lot. And I miss actually going to work. I, I I think there's it's very hard to like feel part of a team if it's all being done virtually. Like there's something really yeah. hard about connecting with the other people, your employees or whatever, um, if you don't see them on a regular basis or you only see them because you schedule like Zoom calls. Like it's just it's just there's something nice about the whole like water cooler talk that I I miss. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm actually very much looking forward to going back in the office. But. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely feel like when I was um, at my last job um, that like going into the office and hanging out with my team members or teammates um, was like a highlight of the day. And I I don't think I could, some days you really want to just focus. And on those days, like I can see working from home being really good because you can just like hole up and like, you know, for me, like if you need to like work through like a long contract or something, but just on a day-to-day basis, like th- my like joy and sustenance came just as much from the socializing as it did from the work itself. Definitely. Um, but yeah. So yeah, I totally get that. Um, one thing also, you know, you, you mentioned kind of your, this transition from academia to some, like some more real world stuff. And I think for me, like, even though I kind of was always more, like more kind of dissatisfied with academia and wanting something more concrete. I think even for me, like, and I mentioned this in an, in an earlier episode, like moving from just thinking, Oh, I want to be writing briefs or doing research and moving to like, no, I literally just want to draft contracts. And like, it just seems so different than what I thought I would want to do, but it, it actually is what I want to do. And it actually like, I really like it. So it's kind of just, just your, your kind of story of um, moving into this corporate communications and not thinking that's what you wanted, but actually like it ending up being a really good fit. Um, I think I had that same experience and it took me a while to get there because I had no idea like it would never have crossed my mind that I would just want to like read and write contracts all day. Absolutely. But I do. There are a lot of jobs that sound really bad on paper, but are actually a lot of fun and really interesting and vice versa. There are jobs that sound really exciting and are actually miserable. So um, yeah, it's weird. It's weird. I mean, that's just part of, I guess, life as you learn over the course of it, you know, things you didn't think you were well-suited for, you're really well-suited for and things you thought, oh, that's my natural career progression are actually really bad for various reasons. So, you know, you live and learn. And, no. uh, you know, fortunately everything's, everything's done well for me so far. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I'm really happy that you, that you found kind of the right intersection of things that let you kind of work, like work in your strength areas and in the areas that make you happy. Definitely. 
So, okay, I thought we would transition um, from the from from this topic, um, maybe to something a little bit more personal. Sure. Um, we were talking um, before before we started recording about our different um, relationship experiences post um, post college, and just reflecting on the fact that. Um, for me, I have hardly dated anyone seriously since then. So, and partially I think it's because I've been struggling with my illness, but partially it's, you know, I don't know what it is, maybe just not meeting the right person or, you know, having other issues getting into relationships that I'm exploring in therapy, excuse me. Um, But I wanted to hear um, a little bit more, like, I guess, well, you can take, you can take this kind of in whatever direction feels good for you, but both like how, like what you learned from like all those different relationships about like what you needed and what you wanted and what wasn't working for you. And also um, maybe second question, or if you just want to focus on this, like what was different about your relationship with Samantha and kind of how you guys met and how you realize that she was the person you wanted to spend the rest of your life? Yeah, well, maybe I'll start with the second question. Um, We met online. So we met on Hinge, um, which I don't know if your listeners are, it's like an app basically that connects you with like people who are tangentially connected to you socially. Um, And it's funny by the time, so this is, we met back in 2015 and um, I'd already, you know, when I, when in college and grad school, I had really, dated people that were like, you know, in my social circle and university or whatever. But when I went actually to the UK to do research for one of the years I was in grad school, it was the first time I did online dating. And um, I really liked it. I actually, a lot of people hate online dating. I feel like online dating is actually really well suited to my personality type for whatever reason. Um, but anyways, I, I basically, from the process of that, that's how I met some of the people who I dated long-term prior to Samantha. Um, and I sort of, (laughs) I sort of figured out what I wanted. So I'm going to read you actually, I have, I have it on my phone here. This was my profile, um, uh, on hinge when, when we, when we first, uh, connected. So I said, uh, yeah, blah, 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 exhibiting, you know, work on exhibition at the NYPL, living in Nolita, looking for a petite, intelligent, mildly neurotic, irreligious Jewish girl or Semitic looking shiksa with a sense of humor, New Jersey residents need not apply. So I kind of knew what I wanted um, in terms of the general general type that I was seeking to attract. But like part of the reason why I wrote like something like that is, is obviously it's sort of funny, right? And it sort of screams for people's sense of humor, right? If they're like, oh, you're objectifying, blah, 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 blah. You know, that type of personality is one that I probably wouldn't click with. Uh, So so it's probably good to screen those people out instead of wasting everyone's time. Um, Yeah, so, you know, we, 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 we met really through the online dating app. We, we met for drinks at a bar near my apartment where I was living at the time. And yeah, we just really clicked. It's hard to describe exactly what it is initially that was so comfortable about it. But I think part of it was like, she was very just open about herself and like I remember on our first date she talked a lot about her interest in Joyce Carol Oates novels and like the different ones that she liked most and it just felt like again it what you know sometimes you go on these dates and it starts out really awkward and you're just like you don't quite 
click and, and it's sort of just like, okay, let's finish this drink and get out of here. This is one where it was just like, I immediately found her compelling and like wanted to get to know more about her. Um, yeah. And then, and then in terms of when, when did we did, uh, decide to spend the rest of our life? We actually, we were on, yeah, we, <laughs> these, are, these are big, these are hard questions. This is like, you're a hard hitting interviewer. Um, it was actually, <laughs> it was actually while we were on vacation. We were in Sicily um, one summer and we sort of just, you know, we started talking more seriously about it, um, you know, trying to think, you know, and just sort of you know, thinking about the kind of life we wanted to live together and sort of the kids and all that stuff. And it just it felt very normal and natural. Um, and yeah, you know, after we got back from that trip, I feel like I, I proposed in August. So it, was just, it wasn't that long after we got back from Italy. Um, so so, yeah, actually. I proposed and it's it's an area called the Elizabeth Street Garden, which is uh, it's it's a it's an area of controversy, hot political controversy in the Nolita neighborhood because because uh, they're trying to turn it's like a sculpture garden that they're trying to turn into public housing for for like low income elderly people. And all these, you know, yuppies in the area are trying to keep it a garden. So there's all you know, it's, it's, there's more, more information than you probably care to know about. But anyways, um, I was able to persuade them to leave the the garden open a little late because I promised that I'd support their legal defense fund, um, and and and, uh, and so I proposed there. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. So it's it's been good. It's been good. I will say it's it's. I think you know you living with your parents right now. I feel like the worst situation for people during COVID is being by themselves. Like I know people who are single and really just living by themselves in an apartment. And that sounds awful. Um, you know, I think there's, there's, there's really, um, yeah, I don't know. Humans are social animals. We're not really meant to, to live like that. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been great. So we've, um, yeah, we've been, we've been, we got married, I guess, yeah, November of 2019. We, 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 we decided to celebrate our anniversary the day before Thanksgiving. Um, not like a specific date in the calendar, just always celebrating it the day before Ooh. Thanksgiving. Uh, so we have this Oh, yeah. that's sweet. Samantha, I like but, that. Because it's, it's kind of practical because it's like the next day is a holiday. So you can whatever you can relax more. But um, <laughs> Samantha's mom doesn't really like this. She wishes that we had like a real like firm date in the calendar. So um, this, this is a source of tension in the, uh, <laughs> in, in the in-law situation. So that's that's really funny. Um, yeah, I can see I can see like certain of my like OCD traits like I can see I, that, that in particular wouldn't bother me, but I can totally see why like somebody that, why that would like get to someone. It's like, no, it has to be exactly like <laughs> yeah. a year, like however. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's not <laughs> my style, but some people feel very strongly about it. So, um, but I sort of, I guess your first question, can you remind me of something about like what I've learned from relationships or something like that? Yeah, I think uh, let me try to remember what I was what I asked, but I think um, I was saying like what what do you yeah what have you kind of learned what did you learn about yourself and what you wanted in a partner and um, basically like how are those relationships different or like not quite right um, I don't know it's a very broad question and if you if it's like too vague we no I, I, I'm I'm just struggling to to think through it but it's a good question. Um, I think I've learned that uh, I can, th so in, in each individual instance of these past relationships, I can think of like specific stuff that was off, but honestly, you know, it's some, some people, I think when they go through dating life, they begin accumulating a list of like deal breakers, right. Where they sort of like, they sort of have like this like checklist of like, Oh, this relationship failed because they were 
too close to their parents. So I don't want someone who's too close. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's that sort of mentality of like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm going to like over rigorously extrapolate from this one experience, um, you know, individual attributes that need to be part of the next one. I don't really think in that way. Like, I, I just, to me, it's like, yeah. it's, it really is a package deal, right? Like, you have to take the totality of it. Um, and, you, and, and again, it's, it's a matter of figuring out the vibe and the connection. I think like, I think fundamentally, like some big things are, you kind of have to be aligned on your core values. You got to be aligned on your core um, desires with respect to having a family or not having a family. Like th those things I get actually as deal breakers. I would, I would say another one is like, I, I was in a relationship for a while with someone who had substance abuse issues. with, And, and to me, that was Although I, it probably doesn't reflect well on me, I just, to me, that became like a deal breaker where it was just, that was not something I wanted to live with for the rest of my life. And, um, and that became a pretty, yeah. pretty firm rule going forward uh, with respect to future people. But, but there's few, there are a few examples that are quite like that. It's more, it's more the totality of it wasn't working. We were growing apart, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I was, I was, I was, we, we discussed this actually on the pre-call or, or the, whatever, <laughs> the, 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 the pre-call, it's not very formal. <laughs> Um, in the green room, <laughs> in the green room, we discussed um, uh, the one thing I really, really love about Samantha is her family. She's very close to her parents, and and I and they've always been very warm and very kind and welcoming of me. And and I feel like the same was very much true with with you and your parents. Um, I really, really, uh, you know, got to know them well. Really enjoyed spending time with them. I have been in relationships where that is not true, where there has been tension between like me and, and, a, and a parent. Um, and that is hard. That is really hard. Uh, if, if you feel like the, the people who are important to the person you're dating either don't respect you or don't like you, that's a very hard thing to overcome. Um, but, uh, yeah. but I, that being said, again, anything, I mean, again, it's for the right person, you know, any, anything can, can be made to work. So, um, yeah. I think that's, I think that's very wise to not, um, you know, that idea that it's really about just the totality of the person and that it's just, you just have to feel that right kind of connection. Um, and it's not about like any specific thing. Like maybe if, even if Samantha, you know, had like, you know, had this like one thing that hadn't worked for you in a previous relationship, that doesn't mean that it wouldn't work with her because of all the other traits and like how they all come together in her yeah. as a person. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm um, getting a note from Samantha right now. Um, Samantha is the best thing that ever happened to me. I'm so lucky to have her. Uh, she's perfect <laughs> in every way. So sorry. No. <laughs> perfect. G glad we, glad we got that out there. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to, um, so we had talked again, as you said, in the green room about, um, your experience the first time yeah. you cried um, yeah. in front of Samantha. And I thought this was a very cute and interesting story. So um, yeah, please, okay. please share with the, us. The rock on tour. Um, so, so basically the first long distance trip Samantha and I took, um, which probably was like at the end of 2015, beginning of 2016, was a trip to um, Prague and Vienna and Budapest. And on the flight back from you, um, I was watching the movie Inside Out, which you've seen. This is the Pixar movie um, on the plane ride back. And uh, I don't want to give away too many spoilers because, you know, I, I, want, I think everyone should watch this movie. Um, but there's a very emotional scene involving uh, 
a character who sacrifices their life on behalf of the better good of this this girl who's the protagonist in the film. And um, and I was watching this on the plane. Somebody doesn't actually watch, she doesn't actually watch uh, movies on planes because she has a motion sickness issue. So she was sort of, I don't know what she was doing, listening to a podcast or me. And she kind of looks over and I'm just like, weeping and weeping on on this plane ride <laughs> and like she looks at the screen and it's like a cartoon right because it's like a pixar movie and um and <laughs> it was it was extremely embarrassing but the thing is it's actually like not unusual for me to be emotional on planes i i find i cry during movies i laugh during like watching comedies on planes in a way that i never would at ground level um and uh it's uh or sea level, and and I and I, and I think that it's I, I think it could be a lot of things. I, I I was told to listen to an episode of This American Life where you know there's all kinds of different theories. It's you know you're sitting down, so there's a blood flow issue. You have recycled air, so it's about oxygen. You're afraid of death because you're in this can in the sky, and this is the way you're sublimating those fears. But the thing that I actually find um, most persuasive for me personally is I just feel like a lot of stress in the moments leading up to getting on a flight in terms of like rushing to get to the airport, making sure you have the ticket, the passport, you packed properly, you have the right snacks, you're not you know, gonna get hungry on the flight. And you go through all this, all the degrading stuff that we have to endure in, you know, in, in airport security. And you finally like get on board and you sit down in the seat and there's really nothing for you to do for like a long while as you fly across the Atlantic Ocean. And like, there's something weird and infantilizing about that where you're just sort of like forced to exist and like obey the rules of like buckle your seat and stay in your seat. It just turns you into a child kind of like, and I don't know, I find it very easy to connect with my emotions in that state, which is, um, I don't know. I, I don't know if you feel the same way. I, I, it's, I, I've also cried watching Forrest Gump on a plane, which is, uh, which is a fun experience. Oh, well, first of all, I cry watching Forrest Gump every time I watch it, whether or not I'm on a plane. <laughs> I don't think I've, I don't think I've, I've watched it on a plane, but I shudder to think how much I, I can tell you, I I'll tell you that the scene that made I me cry. burst into tears was the, is the end when he meets his son and, and he asks Jenny, he's like, is he smart? Right? Like he's like, he's like asking whether his son takes after him in terms of intelligence. And I just like, I don't know, there's something about the way that scene is acted and it's so melodramatic and cheesy and like, whatever, it's like, you can make fun of it, but it actually really is very emotionally resonant with me for some reason. Um, and and yeah. I remember like a stewardess coming over to me and being like, are you okay? Like, I think she thought, like, you know, my, my parents have just died <laughs> or something. <laughs> you no, know, it's just for a scum. That's funny. Um, yeah, and I think what you didn't mention is that um, apparently this is like a yeah. common thing, like, people like this is it's really common and, and I've heard it too I've heard people mention it just um this I, this thing of like getting getting emotional on planes I'm trying to think if I um if I I do think I felt that yeah I do think like there's something about it and I wonder another all of those explanations you gave sound plausible but another explanation um is just maybe like you're so disconnected from like your ordinary cares yeah. and concerns like normally, you know, you're like focused on your work or you're focused on, you know, whatever, whatever it is you're doing. We always have things that we're doing. Um, even if we're like relaxing, we're like, okay, I'm going to relax for this amount of time. And you're still yeah. like within your life. But when you're on a plane, you kind of disconnect from, you're not in the first place you were in. You're not in the second place that you're going to. 
you're just kind of disconnected and like free floating and like all of your normal like defenses are kind of down because of that. And so you can access kind of. Yeah, I don't know. I, I definitely think there's I, I believe that it's it's a weird phenomenon. But um, yeah. I mean, it yeah, could just be the air could quality be like low or whatever. I don't know, but it's uh, it's, it's interesting. I um, yeah, I actually I re I, I rewatched Inside Out just like a month ago, and I think it's a really good movie. You you've seen it, right? Yep. Yeah. So so to summarize, without spoiling for those who haven't seen it, it's a girl. Um, she moves to a new city. Her parents are getting a divorce, and she she her parents are basically kind of, or she it seems like she, she perceives them to be suggesting that she should just be happy all the time. And like, so she, and I, now you, you can probably finish the summary better than me. Cause I don't remember exactly, but basically she goes on this journey with her emotions, like all personified inside her head, like happiness, disgust, sadness, and, and anger, I guess. And she learns to like reconcile them all in a more skillful way and appreciate the moments of sadness and what they bring to us and how important they are in addition to the moments of happiness. That's what I remember. You, you, if I, if you I got almost all of it. it was, their parents are not actually getting a divorce, but, but what it is is she's, she's, I think from the Midwest, it's not really clear where she's from, maybe Minnesota, but like she's moved to San Francisco and like she's left all of the friends behind and she's adjusting to... Yeah, like just it's it's a big life transition, right? She's like she's like kind of beginning her adolescent phase. She's but but it's kind of pre-adolescent. It feels like more of her concerns involve like her disconnection from, um, you know, her her her, her friends back home and and her feeling. And again, she can tell her dad. Her dad appears to be like involved in some venture-backed business because he's talking on the phone with his like investors about their cash runway and stuff, which is kind of funny to me. But um, anyways. <laughs> But she sees like stress in her in her dad's life, and she see and she feels like you know anxiety. But yes, the 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 central conceit of the movie is that each of these like five emotions—anger, sadness, fear, disgust, and joy—are kind of personified by these little cartoon characters. And it sort of is like initially you get the feeling that like the central emotion driving this girl is joy, which is I believe voiced by Amy Poehler, and like basically she's like this joyful kid right but like fundamentally she has this emotion in her sadness that's like doesn't really do anything for her and it sort of is like neglected and is sort of just like shunned and basically the i think the moral of the movie as far as i can tell is that sadness plays a really valuable role in your emotional ecosystem and like actually expressing sadness is a very valuable thing to do both because I guess there's some cathartic value to it, but also like your loved ones can recognize you're in pain and, and going through a tough time and can help comfort you. And she kind of comes to realize that like a lot of these important emotional experiences that she looks back on with kind of unalloyed, you know, happiness actually had a sad tinge to them. And actually like the things she remembers about like her parents, you know, you know, comforting her after the big game, it's like, because she was going through that tough time or whatever, her parents stepped up and really like, you know, showed their love for her. So it, it's kind of, a, again, it's sort of hard to describe, but it's, you know, it kind of goes into the architecture of the brain in a sort of stylized and, and kind of funny way. But I, the, thing, the thing I like about it is I think the message yeah. for kids is a very good one, which is like, you, you sort of need to appreciate the value of emotions, even ones that at first glance don't seem to be useful or, or even particularly nice, right? You kind of see the sadness character 
And initially, they're kind of like a sad sack character who's kind of like pouty. And as a viewer of the movie, you're sort of like, this is an annoying character. Like, get rid of her, you know? Um, but actually, that's the, that's, the, that's the wrong response. Like, the right response is to, is to see the value in what sadness can provide. Maybe I'm mis maybe I'm misinterpreting this entire movie, but that's that's what I got out of it at least. Um. No, I think I think that's exactly I think that's exactly right. Um, it almost seems like the movie, and not almost. I'm sure the movie was informed by this recent, you know, all the recent research in in child psychology that does focus on, you know, letting kids feel all their feelings and teaching them to how to sit with difficult emotions and, you know, not, not just kind of pretending everything is okay. And in that way, I think it's, yeah, very psychologically sophisticated kind of film. Um, and yeah, the one that takes into account a lot of, a lot of the, I don't want to say maybe like advances of, yeah, of I modern think so. I, I think it certainly is, is something that ref, yeah, reflects modern psychological ideas um, in an interesting way. I, sh I should say, though, like, again, you know, it's not totally novel in the sense of, you know, the, the, the fundamental idea behind it is that these emotions are the ones that kind of drive decision making processes. And like, you know, when she's angry, her anger emotion leads her to, like, say, snarky comment to her dad or, or what have you. Um, and like, you know, that's kind of I mean, again, that's that's what David Hume wrote about in the 18th century is sort of the notion that, you know, reason is this is not to be the slave of the passions. Right. The notion that obviously emotions are, you know, passions are different in terms of how he perceived them, but it's the same basic concept, which is that, you know, you, there's a, there's a desire to, to sort of draw everything into a reason, reasoned and sort of, you know, intellectual way. But in reality, that's just an instrument, right? Your intellect is just an instrument. And actually there's some fundamental urges and desires driving it. Um, and and in, in reality, you can't really derive, you know, um, an ought from an is there needs to be some underlying, motivation so i don't know I, I thought it was a good movie i really enjoyed it um i, I also like there's a there's a, <laughs> there's a funny scene near the end where like you begin to see inside the heads of the other characters like her parents and you sort of and they have their own emotions that kind of you know are, are funny and different from hers in various ways um but then there's also a scene where it's like inside the head of a dog as like a slice of pizza goes by and basically all the emotions of the dog are just like pizza pizza like <laughs> it's just like a very uh, very uh, excitable dog which i thought was good yeah yeah i think it was, i i mean it's i i haven't watched it as recently as you have but yeah it was a lovely lovely movie um i was gonna ask something related to that but now i don't remember what it is do you feel like, like, oh, I remember what I was going to say. I wasn't going to ask something. I was just going to say it's funny because for me, um, I literally feel like those are some of the lessons that I'm like now learning in therapy and like now working through is like, you know, how to access your feelings and sit with difficult feelings and, you know, all the stuff from that movie, like, I feel like I'm still, yeah, still, learning still learning some of those too. lessons. I, I actually feel very <laughs> similarly. Like, it's it, it's a movie for kids that I probably should have seen as a kid, honestly. Um. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, 100%. I think um, it's, it's probably like a lifelong process. But I also think like, for me personally, because I was really focused on like achievement um, as a kid and everything else is kind of sidelined, like um, emotional growth and not really, not just as a kid, but, you know, up until up through like college and law school, 
like that was just so much my focus and everything else was kind of sidelined so that I could devote all my energy to that. And as a result, like there were some parts of me that ended up being underdeveloped. And I think, you know, in college, that's one of the ways in which, um, like even when we were dating, I was unable to really, um, like, I just didn't know how to like actually articulate like a lot of what I wanted or what I needed or what I was feeling. And whenever I would feel something bad, I would just like, I don't know. I just, I just, either I would lash out or I would just like ignore it or I don't know. I just didn't feel like, I just think that I didn't spend enough time. I spent so much time focused on achievement that I just didn't really focus on emotional growth. And I'm curious if you, if you feel like that, because obviously you are very achievement focused also, and whether you had a moment when you, um, when you kind of shifted your focus or, or recognized that you weren't giving your emotions kind of enough focus, if that was the case for you, maybe, maybe you were able to. No, no, to I think that is the case. I think as I, I don't think there's, I can't think of like a discrete moment that was like, ah, I finally need to pay attention more to this, but I do think gradually, um, I would say it's, it's still an ongoing process, but through my twenties and, and certainly in my thirties, like I've just felt, yeah, I, I felt like there's, it's weird. It's very easy for me to not think about emotional stuff. Like, I think actually that's my default is, and I, I know people are different in those ways. Like some people it's, they, they just can't help, but be emotional and feel emotionally about all kinds of stuff. Whereas I feel like my emotions are a little bit more below the surface and like, um, and yeah, I think like it, it can be very hard for me to really get my head around, um, you know, why I feel the way I feel about certain things. And, and, you know, it's like anyone else, there's certain defense, you know, defensive mechanisms you've built over time. Um, and I think it's, I think it is true that like, if you're in an environment like Harvard, um, yeah, it's just like the focus, the focus is on other stuff. Like it really, there isn't a whole lot of sitting around and, and just being with yourself and your emotions. Um, that isn't sort of the vibe. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think, I think it's been a process for me. Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting experience. We, Samantha and I are now trying to start uh, having a family and, and we, we recently went through the experience of, of having a miscarriage, which is very common. I've come to learn, but it's, um, it was, it was hard for me to deal with my emotions around that initially. Like, I feel like it's a lot easier for me to shut down and just kind of you know, just focus on work or whatever, as opposed to kind of really grappling with those sorts of things. Um, weirdly, <laughs> weirdly inside out helped me with that. Um, because, because actually that's why I sort of rewatched the movie was it sort of sounds kind of strange, but like, because I had such a strong emotional reaction to it on the plane, I sort of felt like putting on this movie again, I will probably have another emotional reaction and that would be good for me. And sure enough, I did. Like I, I put it on and like I, I cried the same place I cried when I watched on a plane. And it was like actually a good way to kind of work through some stuff. Um, you know, so really, I should, I should really be paying instead of my therapist, I should be paying Pixar really for, for all this. <laughs> I think I have enough money. <laughs> yeah, for, for the for the low price of I'm renting for three ninety nine. Yeah, well, first of all, um, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that you guys suffered a miscarriage. I can't imagine how, how difficult, um, that was. And, and, um, I also really, um, I don't know what the right word is, but I'm, 
the fact that you that you shared that with us, um, with with me and and with anyone who's listening, um, I really appreciate you opening yourself up like that because um, I know it's something that a lot of families experience and you know sometimes isn't really talked about that much. Um, so yeah, I think it's I think it's really great that you are open about it. Um, going to going to your point about like feelings, I think I also. I, I really have a lot of trouble figuring out what I'm feeling at any given time. And I think, I really think that I, I'm almost like not a very emotional person, I think, or like now I'm not. Um, and I don't know if it's like they're buried deep under there or like, or I'm just not really emotional. And you're right. Like there's some people who they can't help but be emotional. Yeah. That's the way they respond to the world, you know? And I just, I'm just I am so too. opposite I, I and it like sounds it, like you are I'm, too. I definitely um, in my day-to-day life am not super emotional. Um, and, and I think like, again, it's not that it's not there, but it's just like, it's not, it's not, it doesn't manifest itself in the same way of like, yeah, it's like unusual for me to cry or whatever. Whereas I think some people, that's just like their default state, right? They cry every time they see a dog or something, you know? Um, whereas that's just not kind of me. Yeah. But, I don't know. I mean, again, it's, it's sort of, um, it's always hard to understand what it's like to be someone else. I mean, that's such a cliche, but like, I, I always wonder what is going on inside other people's heads. That's why I kind of like movies like that, where it's like, you know, to what extent is it like a conscious process and how much of it's unconscious? Um, I don't know. I feel like a lot of my actions are really, it, it's almost like I, I do something and then rationalize it afterwards rather than actually spend a lot of time thinking about it preemptively. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know. Do you feel the same way? Like, I feel like often, like, we'll get up and start going and making food before I have the thought, oh, I'm hungry, you know? That's interesting. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I definitely feel like I I don't really know what's driving my actions sometimes until after the fact. And it's kind of scary sometimes, like, because I'm like, I know I want to make this choice, but I don't know why. And I don't know if it's for a good reason or a bad reason. Um, so that's part of what makes me indecisive. Um, I wanted to also to ask um, regarding um, the miscarriage, how how have you been coping with that? And what has it been like coping with that? And um, kind of, yeah, if, if again, if that's no, something that's that you I mean, feel think, comfortable um, or want to share. Yeah, I, th- I think it's 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 kind of, I think for me, I just, I... I have an instinct to kind of my, my instinct with anything is just to think practically of like next steps, right. Where it's like, okay, let's go get, you know, let's, let's make sure we rule out other possible causes for this by going and getting additional testing or like, let's try again this. I I kind of, it's hard for me to sort of just sit back and really like think through it. I sort of, my instinct is to like get moving again and just start trying, you know, like that's kind of my, my impulse on it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough. It's very disappointing. Um, I will say it's been really nice that the few people I have mentioned it to have really been super warm and supportive. And like, in some cases, they themselves, they themselves have gone through the same thing. Um, and, and have sort of talked a little bit about their experience of it. I was, I was chatting with one of my cousins who, who's actually, she's had two miscarriages and she now has, I think, three children. Um, and, uh, Cause I was, I was telling her, I was like, you know, I feel, cause we told our parents before, uh, you know, that, that about the pregnancy and it was a very early, it was a very early miscarriage, but we, we told our parents and we told, I told my sister and whatever. And like, I was like, yeah, I just feel so like stupid, like having 
told all these people and now I have to call them up and like tell them this. And it's just mm-hmm. like, I feel like I should have waited and I was just an idiot. And like, she, she made a very wise point, I think. Of she's like, look, I, that happened to me once. And it also I've done it, I've done it both ways. Like she's like, in one of my miscarriages, I told everyone and then I had to tell everyone that, it, that I had miscarriage. In one case, I told nobody. And it was something that I and my husband had to deal with alone. And she's like, you know what? Honestly, both suck. Like they both are actually really miserable. And one is not worse than the other. Um, and, and actually like, you know, it's, in some ways it can be worse to try to go through the experience without telling other people and just having it being a private thing, um, versus at least getting some support and love from people. And she, and you know, again, she was like, yeah, I get it. Like, there's nothing pleasant about having to have that phone call, um, or, or shoot that text message or what have you. But, um, but I don't know. I, I thought, I found that a little bit reassuring. She was just like, yeah, it, it's inevitably a tough process. Like there's, there's no way to make it painless. Right. Um, but that's okay. That's okay. I mean, like, again, it's, it's, yeah. it's not like life is painless, you know, part of life is dealing with stuff that doesn't go the way you want it to. So that sounds, that sounds like a very stupid, like, you know, like yeah, pop psychology totally. thing, I but think- I, I, I take some, I think it's serious. I, I do think like, um, as, as cliched and, and sort of stupid sounding as it is, I do think you do grow from painful experiences and, and it can be good for you actually, in terms of bringing you closer to your partner, in terms of, um, you know, helping you really reorient around what matters most in your life. Um, and I, th- I think it can be a healthy thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just want to say, like, I don't think it sounds stupid at all. You know, to me, like the, that fact and, and, you know, a couple other things you said where you're like, oh, you know, maybe this is this is cliche. But I and I don't remember if it was on the podcast or, or on our during our earlier conversation. But yeah, I think those are like fundamental truths, you know, and maybe that's why they sound cliches. It's so it's so true that having pain as, you know, something in your life is like the only way to fully experience kind of the, the range of to yeah. fully experience being human, you have to have pain and, and it does teach you things. Um, so and I think the other thing is that you know, that openness, as difficult as it is, you know, sometimes when you when you share it, and it opens other people up to share their their experiences and and their um, difficulties, that that can forge such a deeper connection. And it feels like this. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I shared it with a coworker and like, Um, you know, his response to it really I don't know, it maybe it deepened our relationship in a way, right? Like opening up in that way and having that re- that connection. Um, yeah, it felt good actually to, 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 you know, someone you work with and you have a work relationship with, but there's something really valuable about, you know, them seeing you as a human being and, and you seeing them as a human being who's gone through similar things. And it just, it, it makes everything else um, just a little deeper and richer, I think. Um, I don't know. Yeah. That's lovely. Um, okay. Well, I think this is a good note to end on. Um, thank you so much, Paul, for, for coming on the podcast and being willing to, to share so much of yourself with us. Um, I loved having you. You're always welcome back. Do you have any final thoughts? Like, like wisdom thoughts or, or like observation, movie recommendations? What do you mean? I mean, oh, it's no, totally no, no. up to you. I, I think, Sorry, I, I didn't I mean to thought, put pressure. Huh. I would say, um, oh gosh. I would say like one one thing I learned, which I think is a useful thing for anyone, is the importance of learning the sunk cost fallacy, which is just, the. I mean, you can Google this, but just the idea basically that 
because you've invested a lot of time and energy in something doesn't mean you that there's any reason to keep pursuing it if it no longer makes sense. And I think that's a good life skill for careers. That's a good life skill mm -hmm. for um, relationships. Like, I think that there's a human tendency to kind of want to preserve things you've put a lot of time and energy into that fundamentally don't work, that are actually like not actually yeah. valuable and are, and are a waste of your time. And I think like, it's just the mentality of like a good poker player who's like, you know what, like the money that I put into the middle of the pot and the table, like, or, you know, the money that I put in, it doesn't belong to me anymore. And actually all I have is the money in front of me right now. And I need to spend that money as wisely as possible. And I think that's true for time and attention and other things as well. I think like, um, yeah, I don't know. That, that's a lesson that I feel like it sounds, again, sounds pretty obvious. Sounds like, yeah, of course, but like it's, it's, it's easier to say than it is to do, but I think it's worth doing. Yeah, I think that's a no that's a really good one. You got to know no when to, to hold them, no when to run, and when yeah, to exactly. fold them. <laughs> um, exactly. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that for that piece of advice. I think. Um, yeah, I think that's a good one. Um, all right. With that, we will wrap up. Thanks everybody for listening, um, and we'll be back soon with more interviews and more of me talking about what I did over the weekend. Thanks. Um, all right. Thanks, Paul.